0: That's BlueNile.com. The Economist.
1: In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukie, the data editor, and I'm talking today with Tim Cross and Jason Palmer, our science correspondents. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. And hello, Jason. Hello. Hey. On this episode, we're going to talk about security for the Internet of Things and we'll look at a new ability to see a molecule in a microscope. Tim, let's start with you, the Internet of Things. First, what is it, and why is it vulnerable to hacking?
0: So this is the slightly naff marketing term that people have come up with to describe our wonderful utopian future in which computer chips migrate off our desktops and out of our pockets into all kinds of of products. So you'll have everything from kids' toys to your washing machine to fridges to cars to industrial control robots, all kinds, everything in the world basically will have little computer chips inside it, all of them connected to the okay. internet. So
1: let me ask you, you say this with a little bit of sarcasm in your voice. Do you actually think this is going to happen or not?
0: No, I do. I, I, it is going to happen. I mean, if you talk to, um, you can basically pick your, your um, optimistic prediction, but to take one example, Cisco, who make a lot of uh, networking equipment, they say at the moment there are about 11 billion devices around the world of various kinds connected to the internet. By 2020, they think that'll be about 50 billion. And you can do lots of like, useful things with this. I mean, people tend to talk about the consumer benefits, so your fridge will order milk for you when you've run out and so on. There are other things you can do. Lots of uh, city governments are quite interested because they can monitor traffic in real time. They can fit them to, say, water mains and monitor the quality of the water in real time. Mm -hmm. They can put them in bins, which will tell people when they need emptying. You know, it's all going to be a a sort of fun world of of convenience. And And
1: and there's more interesting stuff still. I mean, if you put one in the toilet, it could do um, an analysis of your biochemistry every
2: time you flush. Yeah, but there's some completely ridiculous ones as well, like kids' toys that have these so your Barbie doll can also talk to the internet of things so it's there's the full gamut
1: okay so full gamut but there's great some great benefits for the consumers as well Tim your concern is that it's
0: vulnerable to hacking. Well, it's not just my concern. It's um, a lot of security researchers are con- concerned about this stuff, and they're basically worried that we're repeating the mistakes we made in the 80s and 90s when you know PCs and the Internet first got going, which is that everyone is rushing to bring these wonderful devices to market, and so security is a total afterthought, and people are worried about what the consequences might be.
1: Okay, and so what might the consequences be?
0: Well, take your pick. So there have been news stories recently about how it's possible to hack cars, for instance. Way back in 2011 at a Packer conference, this diabetic researcher demonstrated how you could remotely disable the kind of wearable insulin pump that he uses live on stage in front of an audience. Um, Earlier this year, we had another guy figured out a way to um, hack into automated drug pumps and change the dosage of, of things right. they're giving you.
1: And, of course, famously, Dick Cheney had a pacemaker put into his chest and they deactivated right. the wireless
0: He was worried uh, about device. being assassinated,
1: yeah. yeah. Exactly. People could actually do that. I think most people of the liberal persuasion were surprised to know that he had a heart. Well, <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's ungenerous, of course. So, But it's a real concern for anyone who does have a pacemaker. What do you think,
0: Tim? Well, I think so. These are real worries. I think a lot of the press coverage tends to focus on the spectacular stuff that we've just talked about, you know, random hackers taking control of your car and and crashing it and killing you and so on. That's got quite a lot of attention. What's got a little bit less attention is, you know, most people aren't interested in uh, acting out some kind of Jason Bourne fantasy by hacking into random computers around the world. What most of the cybercrime on the Internet is about is about sort of quietly making money. And the Internet of Things is... A great opportunity to do that. So um, if you run a botnet, which is a, a sort of group of thousands and thousands of computers that you've subverted to do your will. Um, you can use it to send spam emails. You can use it to flood websites with traffic requests and hold them hostage so people pay you thousands of dollars to stop and all that kind of thing. Um, the problem with doing that on ordinary computers is there's an antivirus industry. People sometimes realize that their computers are acting up in, in weird ways and they remove your software. If you could subvert, say, a smart fridge or a home router or a smart TV or something like that, you could do exactly this kind of thing, you could do it under the radar. It'd be much harder to notice. If you're the kind of person who runs one of these things, it's potentially much better for you. And we're just sort of starting to see signs of people exploring that kind of thing.
1: Okay. So what can we do to prevent us repeating the same mistakes that we had in the 80s and 90s of having insecure software and hardware? Well, so one of the
0: problems is that a lot of the companies that are building these things, you know, they aren't computing companies they haven't been in the past so you know they're mechanical engineers or, or whatever and, and you know computer security is it's an arcane it's a dark art um, and it's taken even the big guys like Microsoft and Google many many years to figure out how to do this properly so one thing they could do is learn from the people who are already suffering this stuff a lot of the bigger companies when people come to them and say hey we found a problem with your product they tend to get all defensive so there was a famous case where Volkswagen took out an injunction against a security researcher who was about to uh, Who's we trying to tell them about a way he'd found to hack into their like remote car bleepers? That's the kind of thing that that probably needs to change, or one thing that needs to change. The big computing companies have realised that it's basically it's it's almost impossible to write secure software. And these people who spend their time trying to break into your products, they're actually kind of your friends in a way. And they set up this whole responsible disclosure arrangement where if I find a big problem with, say, a Google smartphone, I can phone up Google and they'll pay me and say, thank you very much for finding this bug so we can fix it. Those are the kind of cultural changes that I think are going to be needed.
1: You know, it's interesting. I think what's going to happen, I think you're exactly right in terms of the trends that we're seeing. But if if you're right, what's happening is we're taking whatever product that exists already in physical space, and adding software to it and a microchip to it. And suddenly, you wonder if traditional consumer protection laws just wouldn't apply in this situation, just as you had a widget before, and now you have a widget with software. And well, hardware.
0: so one thing is, in, in some jurisdictions, they make a distinction between goods and services, and the laws are different, and they're generally Absolutely. more favorable for yeah. services. So a fridge is a good, but what about a fridge that orders milk for you? Is that a service? It, it's all, at the moment, it's all kind of a mess.
1: All right, very interesting. Well, thank you very much, Tim. Jason, let's turn to you and let's focus our gaze on molecules. We now have a microscope that can see one. What's special about that?
2: Well, the basic rule with microscopes is, you know, bigger lenses, you can see smaller things and so on. But there is a a basic physical limit, which is you can't see things that are about half the wavelength of light. We're talking sort of several hundred billionths of a meter. Um, And that's kind of where microscopes got stuck until more clever things came along molecules, let's say, you know, on the order of you know, a billionth of a meter across, easily beyond the capabilities of your what's called an optical microscope, the lensy kind. Um, and there is a group at IBM that has been uh, focusing their attention, if you like, on what's called atomic force microscopy. So this is not so much uh, looking as feeling. This thing has, comes to a very, very fine point and sort of taps around. There are a number of ways to do it. But in short, it's kind of like uh, closing your eyes and feeling something and building up a picture from that. And the that. things
0: you're feeling are literally the individual atoms that make up the molecule, is that right? Yeah, the
2: tip actually comes down to a point so fine that it itself is only a few atoms across. So if you very carefully watch how this thing moves, you can see when it kind of goes up and goes down, you can get the, the, the hills and valleys of stuff that is really only sort of, you know, atoms', atoms width. It's like n- nanoscopic braille. Or a record needle, if you like.
1: Uh, so it doesn't use visible light. It uses, in fact, physical touch atom to atom.
2: Yeah, or the forces that kind of come into play at those extremely small distances. Now, this has been known for a very long time. What the IBM group has done is figured a a better record needle. they figured out that at at the scale of atoms, their tip, which is a few atoms across and so on, is is still too blunt to really get the fine precision. They figured out that if you pick up a single uh, molecule of carbon monoxide, looks like a barbell, let's say, just finishes in one single atom, that's your record needle, they can get really, really, really fine pictures. They've done this for the last sort of five years or so. Here we go, first picture of Actual molecules. What they've done uh, this week, and, and what's really astonishing in terms of, okay, great, but what can you do with it, is they've imaged a molecule which is what's called a, an intermediate. Lots of chemistry happens where you start with something, you end up with something, and in the middle it's something else. And these things often live for very, very tiny fractions of, of, of a second. And so with your tapping around and your sort of, uh, your braille reader or your record needle, you can't see this stuff because it's just not there long enough. They figured how effectively to freeze it in time and to get a picture of what this stuff looks like in the middle.
0: So I imagine this this gets you some uh, pretty cool science posters to put on your wall, but uh, I'm guessing there are more practical applications that they've got in mind.
2: What they've looked at is uh, one of the bonds within uh, what's called an aromatic ring. So don't know how much you know about organic chemistry, but pretty much all of it, the chemistry going on in me and you and, and you two, is, <laughs> is all... Thank you for the <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is all based on uh, well carbon-carbon bonds and and rings, things that look like sort of six-sided hexagonal rings, um, and this is this is really really basic stuff. The real foundations of organic chemistry is how these bonds are made, what they look like turns out if you sort of rip a couple of hydrogens off of these rings and form this aerine thing, which is what the IBM guys have been looking at, they don't know what that bond looks like. They don't know how the electrons sort of shift around. They don't know exactly how the chemistry sort of proceeds from, from A to B, from, from reactants to products. Getting a look at this is very early days. I have to say that you know, the immediate application is not going to sort of change everything about the chemistry and me and you and still you. Um, it's... It's a matter of improving some really basic industrial chemistry reactions and learning, hopefully in the sort of long run, how to do this with lots of different kinds of molecules. And all of this is kind of edging towards a chemistry that we can kind of observe in very much in in, in real time and kind of control instead of throw some stuff in a bucket and heat it up and then out comes this. It's, you know, a lot of chemistry is just kind of that kind of black art.
1: So in other words, we might actually be able to do chemistry better when we understand these intermediate interactions among chemicals that we otherwise knew at the input and the output stage, but didn't understand what was going on in these fractions of a second when things are actually happening.
2: Exactly that. There are a lot of processes that are called catalytic that uh, that are hugely important that, you know, make all of our fertilizers or pull pollution out of the air and so on. Uh, fundamentally getting down at the atomic level as to what's going on, making those things more efficient, you know, saves, saves money, hopefully saves, you know, the atmosphere in some way. Certainly if we talk about more generally understanding chemistry at this sort of atomic level, we get, you know, quickly into things like drug design and so on. And this is, this is technique development right we have in most hospitals now a thing called mri that started as nmr nuclear magnetic resonance which would have sounded just as sort of of nerdy and complicated you know if we had talked about in the same way then but which is now absolutely ubiquitous and the way to look inside the human body so we're kind of catching this one at a very early stage and and anyway you know as as tim says the posters are going to be awesome (laughs)
1: love that yeah i want one of those posters too Sadly, that is all we have time for. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.
0: The Economist.
2: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation